Hi, it's Dr. Janet Pope here at Room Now, live in San Diego at hashtag ACR23. I'd like to talk to you about tick twos. And the tick twos aren't ticking me off at all. They seem like really great oral drugs. There's a couple things I want to talk about. So there was a, a late breaking poster, poster L12, and it looked at a new tick two. It was TAK hyphen. 279. And what that TIC2 showed was compared to placebo and active psoriatic arthritis, it had the same improvement of PASI about 50%, got an ACR or a PASI 75. It had about the same improvements of the other TIC2 on the outcomes for psoriatic arthritis, like ACR responses. So the question that I have is two questions. Number one, do we need another TIC2? Number two, where would we put it? And number three, which one would we use? And I think it brings up one other question, and Dr. Conway has talked about it um, on Twitter, actually. And the question is, should we be doing placebo-controlled trials or giving a standard of care in patients with active disease? So if there was a trial of one tick 2 versus another, it would have to be a very large trial to even show non-inferiority. But maybe we should allow standard of care. So I think the take-home message is we've got another tick 2 and phase 2 look pretty good. If phase 3 does, we'll have another one on the market for psoriatic arthritis. Maybe they'll extend into other things like lupus. But one of my comments, a commentary on lots of clinical trials, well-designed trials, but should we have an active comparator instead? So please follow me at Room Now, uh, Janet Burdo, and have a great day. Thank you. Hello, this is I'm Anthony Chan. Uh, from London, United Kingdom, and I'm here at uh, ACR23 uh, reporting for Room Now. And today we've had some really interesting presentations here at uh, ACR23. And I'm uh, together with my guest, uh, Dr. Arvin Maruf from the University of Kurdistan Hawla. Yeah. And uh, she has done some very interesting work as part of a multinational study looking at the concordance between what patients report and what the physicians uh, assess uh, uh, their patients to do. So I wonder whether, first of all, welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, if you could tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing, yeah. in, in particular poster number 0506. Zero zero six. Zero six. Yes. So uh, the work is part of the uh, like bigger uh, project which is the tactic which is uh, uh, first started uh, by translating the uh, PSA uh, uh, questionnaires to Arabic in order to validate it for our uh, uh, like uh, uh, people in the Arab countries because this project is part of the uh, Arlar uh, project group which is ARCH and it's orchestrated by uh, Dr. Nili Ziada. So this project uh, aimed to uh, find if the concordance of patient and uh, the physician about the uh, disease activity is similar uh, to what found in the uh, Europe and North America that there is uh, discordance between uh, the two. So in this uh, study, we uh, in the routine visit, we. Uh, uh, like we checked the uh, both patient and physician um, global assessment uh, also cor correlated it with the demographic uh, factors uh, also questionnaires about the disease um, uh, like the health uh, assessment and the disability the, uh, uh, the fibromyalgia um, rapid uh, scoring tool also have been considered and uh, 
then we correlated all of these and the, uh, the end result was that the concordance between patient and physician assessment uh, was strong, <laughs> like it was 84.4%, uh, with a uh, little lower, uh, like 12% for the uh, positive concord uh, discordance and 24 uh, for the uh, negative discordance. That is uh, really uh, very encouraging because one of the things that we are trying to do is trying to uh, use some of these assessments globally and a lot of the data that we have so far comes from Europe and uh, North America. So this is a very welcome uh, study uh, where these assessments are done in different cultures and even in different languages. Yes, were there some challenges in, in uh, making these assessments when you were doing it in the study? Sure, uh, there are some challenges related to the, uh, uh, to the visits of the patients and also um, uh, some uh, thing related to the um, CRP um, high level and the uh, other uh, uh, demographic uh, uh, change that affect, uh, could affect affect the, the, uh, the uh, results. And those cases with fibromyalgia, you know the pain uh, uh, measures and the, uh, it will be also affected uh, at this time. Um, other challenge was, um, you know, this study is of 13 countries and it is unselected patients, uh, cross-sectional. And uh, it was both challenging and uh, also like uh, an achievement to gather all of these uh, uh, nations and uh, centers together in one project. So as a start, as a kickoff was a bit challenging, but then it went smoothly. Yes, um, the literature suggests that there is still uh, a discordance between what the patients perceive as being very important yeah. and what the physician or the assessor thinks is important. But increasingly, we are seeing that they, they are seeming to come together. Exactly. In your study, it was at 84%. And certainly, we have also presented today in an adjacent poster of yeah. our use of PSA 812, yeah. which is an assessment tool that the patients can complete, and the in-house clinical assessment by the physician, mm. looking at attendance, well, and joint count, and found, again, strong positive correlation. So do we feel that it is because there is more awareness both on the physician and patient aspect on these assessments yeah. uh, or do we feel that um, uh, we are just getting better in, uh, in uh, using these assessment tools and therefore we are seeing less of a discordance? Exactly and you know for psoriatic arthritis we have the skin and joint part. So uh, sometimes the, uh, the patient is complaining uh, because of the skin while the joint is good. So uh, maybe uh, that as, as a patient global assessment will give a high measure uh, just because of the skin manifestation, not because of the joint manifestation. And that will be also an eff uh, affecting the, the, uh, the results. And um, also, you know, it's uh, this concordance between the patient and uh, a physician will affect also the uh, decision-making for the patient and adherence of the patient to the treatment. So uh, if we are uh, thinking about a patient-centered 
like treatment, then this is a very important factor, uh, I believe. So we have to consider it for both 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 parties or both exactly. sides. Exactly. And this yeah. is where the the whole concept of shared decision making yeah. comes into play. And if we believe that if we can do shared decision making better, yeah. I'm sure it'll improve the adherence and also the compliance exactly. uh, of yeah. the patient long term. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Are there anything else you want to add before we uh, uh, well, talk about? Thank your you very much for this opportunity, and I was privileged to present that poster in in in, in behalf on behalf of my colleagues. Yeah, and I'm enjoying the ACR as well. Thank you very much, and uh, thanks very much. Uh, thank you. Uh, Dr. Maruf for joining us today and talking to you about a very big multinational um, assessment that also gives us a lot of insight beyond a cross-boundary in terms of cross-cultures and cross-countries as well. Thank yeah. you for your time today. Thank you. Thank you too. Hi everyone, Professor Peter Nash here, School of Medicine, Griffith University in beautiful downtown Brisbane, reporting for Room Now, ACR Convergence in San Diego. We're going to talk about a couple of abstracts, 0514 and 0538 which are looking at difficult to treat axial spondylarthropathy. We'll talk later about difficult to treat psoriatic arthritis, and you know there's been a strong movement to define difficult to treat RA, so this is following along those lines. The first abstract comes from a French group, and they're trying to define difficult to treat axial spar, and they looked at a large French database and they found 23,000 AXPAR patients, of which about a half had taken a biologic or a targeted synthetic DMARD. Now they followed those patients and they defined difficult to treat as having failed three biologic or targeted synthetic DMARDs or failing two that were of a different mechanism of action. So when they looked through this massive database to see who, which patients fitted that definition that they came up with, and you can argue whether it's reasonable or not reasonable, they found almost 10% across the board would be classified as a difficult to treat AXPAR. And they found if they looked in the patients who'd already failed a biologic or a targeted synthetic, you're talking about 20% of that population, one in five considered difficult to treat. So what were the factors that were um, predictors of being difficult to treat? Female gender, peripheral arthritis and peripheral symptoms, the presence of psoriasis, and then things like depression, hypertension and smokers, when you compared not difficult to treat with difficult to treat. Now this database has nothing about disease activity in it, which is one of its biggest limitations of this particular study. So the bottom line is, according to this definition, difficult to treat AXPAR is really quite common. And the question is, what is the implication? What are we gonna do about it? And so we turn to the next abstract, which is 0538, which is a Spanish cohort of real world patients, 101 of them, who were about to start a biologic DMARD for AXPAR, and these people had already failed a couple of biologics or targeted synthetics, and their definition of a good response was staying on the same drug for three years. And they found 42% of their patients had difficult to treat AXPAR, and the predictive factors, B27 negative, smokers again, relatively short symptom duration, having IBD or other comorbidities, 
or enthesitis, and they found that a six-month time point was a very good point to predict outcome, who was going to do well and who was going to be difficult. So what does all this mean? What are we going to do about these patients who are difficult to treat? We better stop them smoking. We better treat the peripheral comorbidities. And we better pay attention to the enthesitis, to the, the depression, the hypertension, etc. But really, if we can identify this group early, are they a group that needs more aggressive therapy at the beginning? Do they need combinations? and then you can simplify the regime with maintenance. So if you can identify the bad prognostic group early, maybe we'll treat them more aggressively, maybe we'll treat them differently, but at least we can work on these peripheral factors and do something about them. Identify the difficult to treat early, like at month six, and do something about limiting their difficulties over time. So that's all from now, and thank you for your attention. Hello, my name is Professor Peter Nash from School of Medicine, Griffith University, beautiful downtown Brisbane in Australia, reporting from ACR Convergence in San Diego. And continuing the Premalas theme, there's uh, Abstract 1414, which pools patients who lasted 52 weeks in the Palace 1 to 4 in the active study and examined their cardiometabolic effects of a Premalast over that length of time. Now, we are very well aware of the cardiometabolic risks of psoriatic arthritis. These patients have premature atherosclerosis, poorly controlled inflammation drives that disease. They often have metabolic syndrome, overweight, drink too much, abnormal liver function tests, fatty liver, etc. Hyperuricemia, gout. So the cardiometabolic effects are important and any therapy that might improve that is certainly worthwhile taking a look at. at ULA Milan, they showed a very nice study of the new weight loss drugs, Ozempic and Wagovi, in a cohort of patients who were diabetic and also had autoimmune disease, and they looked 10,000 patients with that combination and showed you could reduce deaths, strokes and heart attacks. So what does the Premalast do for these cardiometabolic issues? Well, they looked at patients and they pooled them and they had 780-odd patients who lasted 52 weeks. And they were able to show that 10% who were obese and overweight, they could reduce them from the obese uh, over 30 BMI down to the overweight. And those patients who are overweight, that's a BMI between 25 and 30, 12% could reduce into the normal range when you just looked at weight loss by itself. You could show reductions in LDL, you could show that particularly in those with the highest elevations of LDL. And if you looked at the pre-diabetic population, that is HbA1c between 5.7% and 6.5%, 50% of those patients could be reduced from pre-diabetes to normal. And if you looked at the frankly diabetic patients who had a hemoglobin A1c of over 6.5%, 40% could be reduced from frank diabetes to pre-diabetes. And these results were consistent across different disease activity measures. So here's a medication that works for joints in particular, but also for skin. It's quite safe uh, to the extent where monitoring is not required. And it's able to improve important parameters of cardiometabolic risk, in particular LDL, weight, 
and haemoglobin A1c. So we look forward to this panning out in bigger studies, prospective studies, but at least a plus for this particular agent in treating your patients with psoriatic arthritis. Thanks for your attention. Okay. Hi everyone, this is Bella Mehta reporting from, new, uh, from the ACR 23 for Room Now. And I have with me uh, Paras Karmacharya Hi. who is uh, going to talk to us about a very interesting abstract, abstract number 502. Um, which is developing uh, algorithms to accurately identify psoriatic arthritis patients. Um, can you tell us more about your study? Sure. So, as you know, electronic health records are a cost-effective and efficient way of um, identifying large group of patients um, for our research, especially for um, diseases which are um, less common. Um, However, we know that psoriatic arthritis is a really heterogeneous disease, and so that sort of translates to uh, the finding them in the EHR as well. And so we wanted to develop um, an algorithm which could accurately identify these patients in the EHR. Um, and so for this, we used our um, uh, EHR, um, which is called the synthetic derivative. So it's a replica of the EPIC EHR. Um, which is de-identified. So what do you, when you mean, <coughs> when you say replica, it's like the same patients, everything yes. is the same, but the number, the identifiers are just masked out. Yes, it's, it's stripped off of the identifiers and, and maybe the, the dates are off by about, or could be off by anywhere from one to three years. I see. Um, uh, so that it's totally de-identifiable. Um, and the, the reason for that is it is... Um, it is um, um, uh, associated with our biobank, okay. uh, which is um, about half of the patients in this uh, synthetic derivative have um, uh, at least samples collected okay. for sequencing, and so they are actively being sequenced. So, so, so how many patients did you have, and what did you find? Yes, so. Uh, we, we found about uh, 20, uh, we found a cohort of 2,700 patients um, with psoriatic arthritis. With psoriatic arthritis, so the, the way um, and it has a pretty good positive predictive value of uh, above 90 percent and a, a sensitivity of 81 percent. So, uh, so and you sort of went back and checked the charts of a few patients. That's yes, what you. Yes. So uh, what we did was so, so the synthetic derivative has about 3.5 million uh, patients, and so among them we first screened them for any. Um, ICD-9 or 10 codes for psoriatic arthritis or psoriatic arthritis in, their, in the keyword okay. uh, of the chart. And uh, that got it down to about uh, 5,700. And after that, basically, we split those into, we found like random samples uh, in that uh, 5,700 patients, 200 training and 300 um, validation uh, set. And then we reviewed both of those sets manually I to see. see who are uh, actual cases, true cases. And true case was basically defined as anybody who had, um, uh, who was, who had a confirmatory diagnosis by a rheumatologist or fulfilled the CASPER criteria for chart review. Okay, so then in a way you had 5,000 patients and but at the end of it you just had 2,000 patients. Yes. So it's like... 50% though, right? That's true. That's, that's uh, sort of the, the usual trend in 
the EHR that we find that about 50% are true cases. And then that's why I think it's important to, to develop have these. A actual algorithm, yes. Okay, well, great. Uh, so I guess uh, for people doing clinical research, um, having like one code by a rheumatologist or like multiple codes uh, uh, serially in an electronic medical record uh, sort of defines the true cases. Is that what you would say? Um, so this, uh, so in our EHR, the best algorithm was one where uh, we had at least four codes, four or more That's codes. a lot. It is, yes. I have four or more ICD-9 or 10 codes for psoriatic arthritis or one code by a rheumatologist. Um, now this might be different for other EHRs based of on like how people code. For example, like if there's a rule out, if people are used to putting like a rule out code, if rheumatologists mm -hmm. are used to putting a rule out code for diseases, then that might not work as uh -huh. well. Um, and so the number of codes might be different, but it, I think it sort of gives a starting point to look at algorithms at other EHRs as well, but it definitely it would need some tailoring to fit other EHRs. Great, and where do you think you'll go from here? Uh, so what's this the future? Is, <laughs> so this is definitely um, the first step of our research where we uh, have identified the, these patients with psoriatic arthritis. So the next step is basically we are actively reviewing their charts to better phenotype these patients. Um, and then um, we, um, in the next two years, so it's actively being uh, sequenced right now, uh, these patients, and so we hope to uh, find a combination of both uh, phenotype and genotype that could predict uh, treatment outcomes in this oh, great. Well, we'll uh, watch from your group <laughs> much more. And with that, signing off, this is Bella Mehta. Follow us Thank on you. Room Now um, and on Twitter, uh, Bella underscore Mehta. Thank you. Hi everyone, this is Aurélie Nage from Glasgow. I am delighted to be here with you today. I'm just out of the imaging session, uh, which is actually really exciting. So I wanted to share with you this um, brand new imaging technique. I mean, obviously it's not really yet ready for clinics, but I think it's very promising. And so um, it's called, yeah, I have to look at the, the paper because it's, it's a really complicated name, really. It's called Multispectral Optoacoustic Tomography. Um, MSOT. Basically, it's an ultrasound. It, you know, you use an ultrasound probe, so it's not it's not invasive whatsoever. But because of the the the, the hybrid imaging technique that it is, um, it uses sound and light, and so basically it it it's, it sounds it sends some form of um, wave to the tissue, and the tissue send some um, acoustic uh, information back. And so um, what the authors of this abstract, it was abstract 7 and 50, um, what, they, what they wanted to do was to see whether or not they can um, define antithesis with this new imaging technique. And um, instead of just looking at psoriatic arthritis patients and healthy controls, they also included a group of uh, patients with psoriasis that didn't have any musculoskeletal symptoms. And so it was 30 people in each group. And actually, uh, what they found out was really interesting. Um, so, first of all, they wanted to validate this technique in, 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 uh, in a very well-known setting. So, they used synovitis and they did validate it. But then, um, 
this technique allows you to not only see the the structure um, anatomically but also to assess what is their metabolic composition and so you can see how m- much oxygen you have there how much hemoglobin oxygena- oxygenated hemoglobin um, lipids and collagen and so what I've observed is a few different findings so first of all in PSA patients um, entesis um, and entesitis we're looking with um, more lipids showing that there had been transformation there um, showed less collagen showing that you know they maybe there's some damage there um, already at the very early stage um, but also more oxygenation and that was a sign of you know more vascularization however this wasn't translated necessarily with um, power Doppler and the reason that they um, gave for that is that it apparently it is much more sensitive than um, a conventional ultrasound is and so the other thing that was really interesting is that these findings were also similar in psoriasis patients and that I think is really cool because that emphasizes this whole spectrum and continuum between you know psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis and what's happening in antithesitis even in people that do not have symptoms so obviously it was the first study of its kind it needs validation but I think it's pretty cool and I also also think that it wouldn't be really really hard to implement that in in practice if we wanted to because it's non-invasive and it would just be a matter of you know changing probes and so on um, to do that uh, maybe maybe in the future um, anyway I'm gonna I'm gonna stop here um, I encourage you to tune to rumnow.com for more content and follow me on Twitter at Aurelie Raimo. Hi, I'm Dr. Janet Pope here at Room Now Live at ACR San Diego, which is just a lovely place to have a convention. I wanted to talk to you about one of the plenaries. It's near and dear to my heart because it's a Canadian study, but it isn't as near and dear because I don't do point of care ultrasound. So this is the plenary abstract number 0726. And it was a very well-designed study for the curriculum for musculoskeletal bare minimum criteria of comp for rheumatology trainees or PGY45s. And there was um, a lot of consensus, but there were a lot of point-of-care ultrasound experts that participated. It seemed like in the Q&A there wasn't a patient that participated. That would be great, maybe in the future. And mostly they were experts, so the experts had a consensus. A couple things that they wanted were competency of small joints of hands and feet. They didn't have competency of the knee. Uh, The presenter was asked about that, and some of it might be very well because we can examine the knee pretty easily, but that's not what the answer was. She said maybe starting with small joints would be easier. However, what I've done is a Room Now poll, and I hope that you'll participate. But so far, I've said, do you think there should be a minimum competency in POCUS, point-of-care ultrasound? And there's leaning towards yes, but a little bit of no with hocus-pocus. So we'll see over time. Anyway, follow us here in San Diego at Room Now. Thank you. Hi, Room Now. I am Dr. Rachel Tate coming to you from ACR 2023 in beautiful San Diego, California. And I have the pleasure of talking about everything that's new in 2023 with my dear friend, Dr. Alexis Ogdi. So, Alexis, first, how's your ACR going? So far, so good. Fun (laughs) to see all the faces. And San Diego is a great place to have the ACR. I totally agree. But we're East Coasters, so we can say that. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, tell me what's new in our field of spondyloarthritis. What do you find really salient this year? 
Yeah, so if I even just think about the trials that are being presented this time. So we have two trials of IV secukinumab. So, you know, obviously the data is not surprising. Secukinumab works compared to placebo in psoriatic arthritis and spinal arthritis. But the nice thing is that IV secukinumab is now available. Yeah. So I think that having a dosing regimen and having that available, especially for our Medicare patients, bleh, bleh. And, uh, and then also, though, for our patients who are obese. So, yes. you know, we often see that drug kind of wearing off, and so it would be nice to really dose that by body weight now. So. so I actually didn't think about that as being an additional feather in its cap, but I do think that's really important. Yeah. It's access, too, though. We have to yeah. be able to get it. Exactly. So that's one. Um, new TIC2 inhibitor being presented, uh, TAC279, doesn't even have a name yet, and it's a phase two study in psoriatic arthritis. And it looks very similar to ducravacitinib, so at least there'll be another uh, TIC2 inhibitor coming. So ducravacitinib still approved for psoriasis, not yet PSA. Still waiting for that phase three, yep. but at least we have a new class coming and ga gathering more data around that. Good. Now that's awesome. And then third, we have the foremost trial, so another new trial, new patient population in psoriatic arthritis. So this is a sub uh, subset of patients with psoriatic arthritis with oligoarticular disease. Okay. So first trial in oligoarticular disease, helping us understand how to study this population and maybe the role for where a primalast should be used. Now you participated in foremost, did you not? Uh, only as in reviewing data and providing right. input. But that's important, right? We need to have the context to build the story for our patients. No, I really appreciate it. I love being here in San Diego, and I love being here with you. Thank you so much. <laughs> As always, but you know me. So, um, at, and check us out on roomnow.com for this and more information and we will be happy to tell you about anything spa related and PSA related as we continue on at ACR 2023. I'm Anthony Chan from London, United Kingdom, reporting here for Room Now that's in San Diego ACR 23. Today is another uh, day where we've uh, seen a lot more presentations here at the meeting and one of the fields of rheumatology that has uh, certainly been expanding is the use of ultrasound in particular musculoskeletal ultrasound. But one of the issues that we want to discuss is about the teaching and the delivery of ultrasound uh, to the users. How do we find a way that we can deliver teaching in a more effective manner uh, for users? So I'm here today joined by Dr. Sebastian uh, Valentin Schaffer, uh, who is from the um, University of Bonn in Germany. And he has presented today a very nice work uh, in the abstract number 2079 uh, on the use of teledidactic way of uh, implementing teaching versus uh, on-site teaching. So Sebastian, uh, Valentin, sorry, uh, welcome Thank to you. today's uh, meeting and I wonder whether you could take us through yeah. the work that you've been doing. That's a pleasure, it's a pleasure. Nice to, nice to be able to present uh, our abstract. Well, what we did, uh, we have been implementing point-of-care ultrasound uh, at the University of Bonn. I'm the ultrasound director and also the head of rheumatology. So I really tr tr try to make rheumatology as sexy as possible for medical students. And we have an ultrasound curriculum which is published, the MUTE study, musculoskeletal ultrasound in dermatology, which was focused on dermatologists to learn the most important ultrasound planes which there are in musculoskeletal ultrasound. And we further tested this in an, another study which is already published, the PSOZONE study, where dermatologists used musculoskeletal ultrasound to early diagnose psoriatic arthritis and it really worked quite well. And what we did now in our current abstract, we used this ultrasound curriculum to test teledidactic versus on-campus musculoskeletal ultrasound training um, in medical students. And how we did this, we did the pre-OSCE, so an objective structured clinical examination, a practical exam of ultrasound skills before the training and after the training. 
and we had one group assigned with 30 medical students doing on-campus training and the other one doing solely teledidactic training. In both training courses we involved peer tutors to just decrease the level of interaction from student to student and we had experts like me who were online and were also available for deeper tasks. Now you ask yourself perhaps teledidactic how does it work and it's, it's not working, ultrasound is a practical skill. It is working because every student got his Butterfly IQ portable ultrasound probe and an iPad and they got it home and they were training during these online sessions with their student students or with their friends the ultrasound planes, we had the peer tutor who was just improving the plane, put it right, left, deeper, increase B mode and so on. And at the end of this course, which went over 12 weeks, we did another practical examination and we found amazing, outstanding results. The on-campus training had 90% of the possible highest uh, degree they could achieve and the teledidactic achieved even 92%. So numerically, teledidactic ultrasound training was even better. And that is amazing. I mean, we have to go with the time. We have to give students the possibility to teach them teledidactic if they want to, especially if you have students who live far away. They don't have to come to the university. They can train wherever they wanted. And we had the flipped classroom. That means medical students had the possibility to be online whenever they wanted and look at the different teaching courses and just reinforce their skills. That's an excellent result, a very high concordance between your on-site That's and true. your teledidactic. Um, in terms of the modules that you're teaching, uh, in the poster you talk about musculoskeletal exactly. ultrasound. Do you think there's a possibility of expanding this to other regions of the body? Yeah, definitely. We, we have done this for ultrasound of the abdomen, the thyroid glands and the abdominal vessels. It's the TELOS-1 study, which is published in the European Journal of Ultrasound. Uh, which was solely teledidactic because it was the pandemic and uh, we also already conducted the TELUS 2 study teledidactic ultrasound also abdominal vessels and thyroid which is currently submitted for publication mm -hmm. so I really think this teledidactic teaching is possible we have to go with the time and we have to be attractive for our medical students and also young doctors in order to de deliver the best teaching at every location so it's amazing because uh, it, it also uh, covers acute uh, aspects of uh, yes. care, so acute of care, course. for example, emergency care. Yes. Uh, so I suppose for rheumatology, the acute emergency would be the giant cell arthritis, Definitely. GCA. So tell, tell me, is this applicable in the training for that yes. part of the um, uh, condition? Yeah, that's a very, very good question. Ultrasound is the first diagnostic imaging tool we use now for diagnosis of GCA. It has been implemented in the EULA guidelines recommendations. I was also a member of it, so it's very important. And we have published a paper on this on a patient's prospective study. We performed a blinded evaluation of the temporal artery with a point-of-care device and a high-end device, and giant cell arthritis was diagnosed in every case correctly. Not in every vessel, but in every case. So it works. I still see a place for the high-end devices, but really for point-of-care, you want to know if it's really GCA, Point of care also works with these devices. So um, it's um, you know it cut across many different regions of the body and many different conditions as well. What does the future hold with the teledidactic um, training? Yeah. Where can we take this further for for our community in rheumatology? Sure. I think the biggest hassle at the moment is that we cannot deliver ultrasound training at every location in Europe or even across the world. And I think this is the biggest implication that we can offer ultrasound training whatever, abdomen, thyroid, or for us, of course, vessels and joints, 
at every location possible, even in China or in Korea or wh wherever, we can teach these doctors and improve medical care, and we don't do not have to come then to our countries to learn it. So that's uh, you know this is the whole idea of moving knowledge and what not moving Definitely. people, yeah. so that this can be done. Yeah. So I suppose in the long term, how do we standardize the the learn the teaching across different yeah. countries and different regions? Will there be an exam that is set, or how do you know yeah. that they've achieved the standard that you set them out to do? Standardization is very important, and it's a very important aspect. I think important is before standardization, really publishing curricula, which we have done, and then adhering to these curricula. And the practical examination we did is an objective structure clinical examination in OSCE, which is completely standardized. Everyone is asked the same questions, do this, do that, start the machine, show us this section, do you see effusion, what is your clinical interpretation. And this is very standardized, so this can be really translated to every location. The only thing you have to do is translate it perhaps to another language, if English is the problem. But normally, this could, would, I would not expect uh, any hustles. Yeah, so this is a, is a major improvement in terms of the delivery and innovation, which are very keen, especially we've been discussing about digital health and digital toolkits and how we can improve the spread of this condition. Um, so for our viewers, you know, as we kind of wrap it up, what would be your take-home message about <laughs> your, your poster that you presented? You. What you. were your take-home messages okay. for our readers? Yeah, I think my, our take-home message is this teledidactic training works and also an ultrasound. There are these people who say ultrasound is a practical skill. You need to come where and you need to learn it practically. No, it is possible to learn a teledidactic if you have a good teacher, if you have the appropriate machinery like we had. So they really, you can project the live ultrasound sections to the tutors and then it really works. So we look forward to hearing more about your work in the future, future meetings, congresses. And as you advance and really champion ultrasound, <laughs> I think we've never met such a passionate person who, Thank and you. I met you today, and uh, this is why we feel that uh, this would be a good uh, way of trying to deliver teaching, because it's always difficult to get everybody to come in one-to-one -one location. And so today we've learned something new. So thank you very thank much you. for your time. Thanks Again, I would you. advise <laughs> you to have a look at Abstract 2079 uh, from Dr. Valentin Sheffer. Thank you very much. Thank you very much as well. Bye. Hi everyone, my name is Professor Peter Nash from Griffith University in beautiful downtown Brisbane in Australia, reporting for Room Now from ACR Convergence in San Diego 2023. I thought we'd discuss a couple of the Premalast uh, abstracts presented here. One is abstract 1691, which looks at the foremost study. Now the foremost study is interesting because it took patients with less than five years of disease in fact, they had a median of six months of disease and a mean of about 10 months, so they're quite early patients. And they focused on a group we commonly see and we commonly get asked to see, which is the oligoarthritis group. And these patients had to have more than one but less than four swollen joints. And they had to have, um, this study went for 24 weeks. The primary endpoint was one that they uh, developed, which was called minimal disease activity but focusing on joints. So the mandated improvement in the joints and they added three out of five of the other elements, skin, uh, patient pain, patient global, as well as uh, skin itself and uh, function. So the primary endpoint was the MDA joints at 16 weeks and they looked at all the usual other secondary uh, parameters 
You can escape at 16 weeks. At the end of 24 weeks, all placebo patients went on to um, active drug out to 48 weeks, and they had 90% of patients who lasted and maintained out to 48 weeks. They had about a third of the patients who were CSDMARD naive, and about 40% had concomitant background therapy, mainly methotrexate and a little bit of sulfasalazine. So they had to have active disease. They had uh, C-DAPSs of over 16, PASTASs of 5, 6% had body surface area greater than 3%, active hack, and 64% had a score called the PASS and was not in an acceptable state. They were mainly about 50-year-olds, 58% women. And most of the joint involvement were in the PIP joints and um, a small number discontinued, mainly for uh, nuisance adverse effects like diarrhoea. Um, the uh, primary endpoint, as I said, was 16 weeks MDA joints. They, it was a placebo-controlled double-blind trial against 30 milligrams twice a day of a premolast, and they had uh, significant improvements in tender joints, in body surface area, in patient pain, patient global and hack and numerically superior results for numerically better results for swollen joints and leads enthesitis score. So we had a bunch of oligo patients, a bunch of early disease patients who did well on a premolas compared to um, placebo. So what's the implications of this study? In our country we can only get a premolas for psoriasis and we wanted it as adjunctive add-on therapy for patients who had milder disease, patients who were only partially controlled with a biologic or one other agent, and that's where I think it will fit in the best. In our country, we have to have failed two conventional synthetic agents for 24 weeks to be eligible for a biologic agent, and we would like those two to be methotrexate and a premolast before going to a biologic rather than leflunamide or sulfasalazine which really has very little evidence of efficacy, no efficacy much on skin and other domains like axial, radiological progression etc. So we'd like to see a premolast approved in our country for those patients who needed an add-on therapy for partial response, for those patients with milder disease for those patients who are recovering from an adverse effect and need some therapy. And we see there's an important role in the future for this particular agent if we can get it approved by our regulators and our reimbursers. Thank you very much for your attention. Hi everyone, it's Aurélie I am super excited to be with, uh, there with you today in San Diego for the first day of ACR. And um, yeah, already saw quite a few really cool abstracts and one of them I wanted to talk to you about is abstract 0746. The reason why I thought it was cool is because I use ultrasound a lot in my practice and see I see a lot of PSA patients in my clinics and I scan them and you know I see a lot of patients that have very specific ultrasound features um, and I'm, I've always been wondering how does that correlate with the clinical outcomes and so this study, so the authors were really interested in trying to understand that and so they recruited prospectively 135 patients which is quite a 
consequent number when you think of all um, the different features they've been assessing with ultrasound and so they've been looking at synovitis, entosiitis, um, tenosynovitis, peritendonitis. So you're going to ask me what's the difference between those? Well actually, you know, uh, peritendonitis are those um, features that you see around the tendon when there's no tendon sheath. So it's pretty similar to tenosynovitis but um, they also looked at newborn formation and erosions. And so um, First of all, they found really kind of basic correlations that are reassuring. You know, there if you have more ultrasound synovitis, it's correlated with having a higher joint count. Well, that swollen joint count. Well, that makes sense. Um, and if you have more ultrasound enthesitis, you do have a higher enthesitis score clinically, which again makes sense. However, um, it was a bit disappointing for a few of the features, unfortunately. And one of them was they couldn't find any features that were specifically as associated with reaching uh, DAP cellulitis activity, um, but those patients who did have higher number of synovitis, higher number of anxiety, so more kind of inflammatory type phenotype, um, did, uh, were most likely to um, have a greater reduction of, of their DAPSA. Um, and also they did multivariate analysis to see how these parameters would correlate with, you know, this is um, outcomes uh, and outcome measures. And again, so, you know, those who had more ultrasound synovitis would have a higher reduction in pain. Those who had a higher newborn formation uh, on ultrasound would have a higher CRP. Um, those who had uh, tenosynovitis or peritendonitis um, did have a higher reduction of swollen joint count. So generally speaking, what does that tell us? Well, it doesn't tell us much. I was really disappointed, you know, because I saw I was going to figure it out and, and, and I didn't. And I think, you know, this is telling us a few things. First of all, either ultrasound, you know, features do not help to define clinical phenotypes and predict disease course, or maybe we could try to correlate them with um, outcome measures that are composite, and therefore, you know, it's going to be really difficult um, to find a way to, to, to do that. So more research is needed to understand uh, what these phenotypes are and how they correlate with uh, disease outcome. This was Aurélie Nash from Glasgow here in San Diego. Tune on rumnow.com for more content and follow me on Twitter at Aurélie Romo. Hello and welcome. My name is Professor Peter Nash from School of Medicine at Griffith University in beautiful downtown Brisbane, Australia. And I'm talking about uh, a window of opportunity in psoriatic arthritis. There's only been one real study that's looked at this carefully from um, Mohammed Haroon in Dublin that showed there was a window of opportunity where people would do worse functionally, the possibility of drug-free remission, etc. is about six months. So this is the Dutch cohort of 855 patients. <clears throat> they had new diagnosis of psoriatic arthritis. These people were DMARD naive, and they looked at um, the total delay of getting diagnosed and treated. They looked at whether it was related to the patient, and they found that was quite short, about four weeks. They looked at whether it was a GP delay, and really that was quite short as well. It was about 18 weeks, because the median delay for the whole cohort was about 42 weeks to get diagnosed. So they split them into those patients who had diagnosis delay of less than 12 weeks, between 12 and 52 weeks, and greater than 52 weeks. 
and they showed quite clearly and significantly that if your delay was over 52 weeks, you had significantly less chance of getting into um, minimal disease activity, significantly less chance of getting DAPs or low disease or, uh, or remission, and significantly worse hack over time. Um, there was no difference in x-ray progression, and although numerically better, there was not a big difference between 12 and 52 weeks, which is a little disappointing, but clearly over 52 weeks is bad news, and I'm sure that the real problem is that a lot of these patients, even though this study didn't show it, they live in general practice where the, the uh, penny never drops between the joint symptoms and the presence of psoriasis. So these patients are considered to have osteoarthritis and just treated with an anti-inflammatory. Why? ESR normal, CRP normal, rheumatoid factor negative, maybe a bit of nodal OA, they're written off as having um, osteoarthritis and just given an NSAID. The number of these patients who have a painful swollen knee that gets an unnecessary arthroscopy, the number of patients who have forefoot inflammation and have unnecessary Morton neuroma surgery, so this is an educational opportunity at general practice and we need to think about timely referral and cut down the, any delay to get people appropriately diagnosed and treated. doesn't always mean they have to have very expensive biological treatment because there's no difference in x-ray progression, but clearly they need to have their, their pain, their fatigue, their symptoms, their quality of life improved by appropriate treatment. Thank you very much for your attention.